All right. All right. Good to see everyone. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis? Guess what chapter? Hey, we're moving. We're moving. Okay. Yes, we are in Genesis, an awesome book, the book of beginnings. And we have worked our way up through verse 13, so tonight brings us to verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. The Hebrew word for lights is a word that means light bearers. So God, who is light, who created the light and the darkness, on the first day of creation now, on the fourth day, he creates the light bearers and places them behind those points of light that have already filled the universe. God is light. God made the universe mature. And so light flooded the universe on day one, and then on day four, God now creates the sun, the stars, to hang behind those points of light. Now, as we have been comparing a little bit here in chapter one, this first creation with the new creation. What is the new creation? Well, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've received him as your Lord and Savior, you are now a new creation. Paul the Apostle tells us that. And as we said, it was so much easier, if I can put it this way, nothing is hard for God, you understand. But from a human standpoint, we'll say, it was so much easier for God to speak the universe into existence than it was to redeem a soul. The psalmist said, no one can redeem his brother, for their soul is costly. Redemption is costly. God could speak the universe into existence with just a word, but he couldn't speak sin away with just a word. Someone had to pay for that sin because God is holy and righteous and his righteousness and justice demands a payment for sin. But sinners can't die for sinners. So God, in his mercy, became a man. And the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, became a man. And he went to the cross and died in our place, the innocent for the guilty. And now when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, he said, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Hey, the light has always been. God is eternal. His light has filled his creation from day one. It's just that the devil deceived Adam and Eve. They disobeyed God. They plunged this world into spiritual and moral darkness. And now God is looking for light bearers. God is looking for those who he can touch, those who will receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and now he will put them behind his light in the sense where they become light bearers to this world. I want you to notice that Paul in Ephesians 5 verse 8 didn't say we were once in darkness, although we were. He said that we once were darkness, and we demonstrated it by living and walking in that darkness, that sin and rebellion against God every day. But again, once we've received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, now we are light in the Lord. The word there for light is the Greek word phos, and it doesn't simply mean to reflect light. Listen, it means to actually be light. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples. He said at one point, first he said, I am the light of the world. Remember John 8, 12 and uh, chapter 9, he said, I am the light of the world. But at one point he said to his disciples, now you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Saying basically the same thing Paul is saying. But we don't just reflect the light of God in this world. When we were born again, Jesus himself came to live inside of us through the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit. And listen, we became light bearers. Look, as God created the moon to give light in the night, the moon only reflects the light of the sun. We know that. The moon is not really a light source. If we wanted to get technical, we could say the moon is a deceiver, pretending to be light, but only reflecting the light that belongs to God. There are a lot of religious people in this world who seem to reflect God's light. 
but they really, they, who seem to have God's light, I should say, within them. But they're only reflecting God. We were made in the image of God. And so even in fallen man, we have, uh, as someone put it this way, uh, before the fall, as we looked at ourselves, maybe in a very uh, calm pond, very calm day, calm pond, you look at yourself, you see your reflection, all right? When God looked at us before the fall, he saw his reflection, clearly. But after the fall, a rock was dropped into that pond. You look into it now, there's ripples and waves, and, and you see your reflection, but it's distorted, right? After the fall, as God looked into the human race, he saw his reflection, but it was very distorted. And yet there was still something of his mercy, his grace, his love, and yet it was distorted because of sin. And this world can still reflect somewhat of God, but it's a distortion. And really, whatever we reflect from God, it's not really anything in us. And that's not true of Christians. Once we give our hearts to Christ, we become a light source like the sun. Just as God created the sun in part for the purpose of giving light to our planet, God created us, the new creation, to give light to this world as the light bearers of God. You know, as sunlight comes in contact with our planet, it produces photosynthesis, which allows plants, grasses, trees, and phytoplankton to grow and reproduce, which makes life on this planet possible. Uh, many people think that most of the oxygen on planet Earth comes from the rainforest. It does not. It comes from uh, phytoplankton in the seas and oceans of the Earth. And that phytoplankton would, be, would not grow, would die, if there wasn't the light of the sun hitting it, making photosynthesis possible. Now, applying that illustration to Christians, when the sun, capital S-O-N, came into our hearts and filled us with his sun light, something began to happen. Fruit began to grow. Fruit began to grow. Just as physical fruit grows naturally as a result of the light of the sun, so too, in the life of the Christian, spiritual fruit naturally grows when we are filled with the light of Christ. We are the light of the world, but we still have to be connected to the light source for the light to shine through us. A dirty window, even if you've got a bright light inside of it, a very dirty window is going to block out that light. If our lives are not holy, if we're not walking in the Spirit, if we're not staying in the light, the truth of God's Word, in close fellowship with God, you know what? Then our light is not going to shine. Uh, and that's the whole point. God wants us to be light bearers. He wants us to show this world what He is like. The only way we can do that is by walking in fellowship with Him. That's why Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine that when the world sees your good work, sees your fruit, really, the character of your Father, it will glorify God. Now, in verse 16, it says, now, Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. You know, John MacArthur in his book, The Battle for the Beginning, gives some interesting stats on the sun and moon. I hope you enjoy these. I kind of like these kind of things. So bear with me if you uh, get a little glazed over in your eyes when you hear stats. But uh, the sun and the moon, very important okay, to the survival of our planet. And God took special measures to make sure they were just the right proportion and so on. He says, and I quote, the sun, of course, radiates light, while the moon merely reflects light. From an earthly perspective, both are light sources. The Genesis account does not aim at a scientific explanation of how the moon gives light. It simply reveals that the divine purpose for the moon was to provide illumination by night. And that purpose is perfectly fulfilled through the reflected light cast by the moon. The sun and the moon are fascinating heavenly bodies. The sun is an immense ball of flame. Its diameter measures 865,000 miles, which is about 109 times the diameter of the earth. Its volume is 1.3 million times greater than that of the earth, meaning that if the sun were hollow, it would take more than a million earth-sized objects to fill it. The surface temperature of the sun is estimated to be about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, but scientists believe the temperature at its core is around 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. As stars go, the sun is only small to medium-sized. Astronomers classify it as a yellow dwarf. By comparison, many stars known as supergiants are as much as 1,000 times larger than our sun. One such supergiant star that we can observe is Betelgeuse. 
Its size varies because it seems to pulsate. And at times, it is at least 600 times larger than our sun. The distance from the Earth to the sun is about 93 million miles. At that distance, it takes about eight and a half minutes for light to travel from the sun to the Earth. So the light you see at the first glimpse of light at 6 a.m. in the morning, sunrise, is light that left the sun at about 5.51 a.m. at your location on Earth. The moon is also an immense body. Its diameter is more than one-fourth that of Earth's and is larger than the planet Pluto, which I understand now has been downgraded. It's no longer a planet. It's a pebble, I guess. I don't know. Its surface temperature varies enormously compared to that of the Earth. Depending on whether it is in the sunlight or darkness, the moon's surface can be as hot as 215 degrees Fahrenheit or as cold as minus 243 degrees Fahrenheit. The moon circles the Earth like a far-off satellite in a slightly elliptical orbit. The moon completes a full orbit around the Earth every 27.3 days, traveling a distance of almost a million and a half miles each month. The moon has virtually no atmosphere, so there is no difference of the reflected light at the moon's surface. Standing on the moon, the sky appears black even in bright daylight, and viewing the moon through a telescope, its features may be seen from Earth with amazing clarity. The moon, like the sun, helps keep the perfect balance of Earth's life-sustaining environment. Ocean tides are caused by the moon's gravitational pull. High tides align with the moon on both sides of the Earth. The Earth bulges slightly both toward and away from the moon, and this affects water levels of the oceans. As the Earth rotates on its axis, those bulges move across the face of the Earth. That's why there are two high and low tides each day. The size of the tides varies depending on how close the moon is to the Earth and where it lines up with the sun. These tides are vital to the balance of Earth's ecosystems. Scientists have proposed a number of theories about how the moon may have been formed by natural processes. Some have suggested it split off from the Earth or was violently torn from the Earth by a collision with a massive body the size of Mars. There was just an article that came out just a few days ago where they were saying that this is what they really believe, that a giant, you know, like a planet hit Earth and a big chunk of Earth flew out and became the moon. All right? Just read this a few days ago. Okay. Of course, we know it's true because the scientists said it. So, you know. <laughs> Some believe it was formed elsewhere in the solar system and captured by the Earth's gravitational pull. Others believe it formed along with the Earth as a kind of double planet. Each of these explanations that MacArthur says poses major problems. Uh, for example, three minerals have been discovered on the moon that are unknown on Earth, undermining the theory that the moon and Earth were once a single body. The dynamics of how the moon might have broken off and escaped Earth's gravitational pull are also impossible to explain by any known model. For this reason, there is no real consensus among scientists and evolutionists on the, on the question of how the moon was formed. Even though some $20 billion, $20 billion has been spent by modern scientists trying to answer the question of how the moon evolved, quote-unquote, the Bible's explanation avoids all such difficulties. God simply created the moon and placed it in orbit around the earth. He did this on day four of the creation week, end quote. Why do people, I mean, want to argue, want to fight the obvious, okay? Let's go back to verse 14 for a moment. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Now, while it is true that since the beginning of time, man has used the sun, moon, and stars to determine the time of day, the seasons of the year. In fact, the Jews could look at the moon and tell you what day of the month it was and be very accurate, by the way, because they were on a lunar calendar. They understood this. And so for many centuries, man has used the sun, the moon, and the stars to determine the time of day, the seasons of the year, even to navigate with. But the Hebrew in verse 14, I think, gives us further insight into why God created the sun and the moon. The Hebrew word for seasons is moed, which is translated feasts in Leviticus 23, verses 2 and 3. Here it's translated seasons, same Hebrew word in Leviticus 23, talking about the feasts of Moses is translated feasts. 
Hebrew scholars point out that the most accurate translation of the Hebrew word moed is divine appointment. Divine appointment. So in other words, part of the purpose of these heavenly bodies was to announce the coming each year of the feasts of God, which were, listen, divine appointments, where he and his people connected in a very special way. The seven feasts of Moses outlined in Leviticus 23 were divine appointments not only as yearly feast days when Israel and God came together to remember significant events in the past, as with Passover, or to remember the way God took care of his people during their wilderness wanderings, as with the Feast of Tabernacles, or to simply trust God that he was going to provide a great crop or a great harvest that year, and then to thank him when he did, because many of these feasts had an agricultural emphasis, because they were an agrarian culture, uh, agriculture, which meant the planting of seeds and the harvesting of crops, was central to their existence. And so they would have feasts that would uh, ask God to provide an abundant harvest and trust that he would. And then when he did in the fall, the Feast of Ingathering, Tabernacles, was a great celebration where they thanked God for his bounty. Now we know that all of those things were God's way of, of meeting with his people on these very important feast days, divine appointments, where they remembered God, where they praised God, where they thanked God, and so on. As New Testament Christians, we know these feasts had a very important spiritual significance to them as well, in that they prophesied of a coming time when God would keep some very special appointments with his people. The first three feasts, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits, of course, speak of Jesus' first coming. Jesus' first coming, when the Bible says, um, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The Word that created everything with the Word of His power. The whole, the, what we're talking about right now in Genesis 1, the same Word that created everything, at one point became flesh, Jesus Christ, and dwelt or tabernacled is the is the word among us he kept a very important appointment paul said in the fullness of time god sent forth his son born of a woman a very specific time that goes all the way back to genesis chapter 3 verse 15 when adam and eve sinned in the garden and god pronounced the curse and he said to the woman now in pain you're going to bring forth children adam you are going to work and bring forth your bread through the sweat of your brow. But I'm going to send a deliverer. Someday I'm going to send a deliverer. The serpent, he's going to bite his heel. But he's going to crush the serpent's head. In the fullness of time, Jesus kept that appointment. He became a man. In those first three feasts, those spring and early summer feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, and um, first fruits all spoke of his first coming work he was crucified on the day of passover he was buried on the feast of unleavened bread he was raised from the dead on the very feast of first fruits we know the last three feasts trumpets yom kippur and tabernacles speak of his second coming when he will have another appointment with the people of this earth he came the first time as a lowly lamb of god right He's going to come the second time. And he's going to keep a very important appointment with the people of this world. He's going to come as the lion of the tribe of Judah to execute judgment upon the rebels, all those who have refused to bow the knee to his lordship, all those who have lived in rebellion against him. He's got an appointment with them. And when he comes, Revelation 19 tells us he's going to fight against them with the sword that proceeds from his mouth, the very word that created the universe is going to be the very word that he will speak to judge them and wipe them out. And I believe Jesus Christ will fulfill the last three fall feasts, trumpets, Yom Kippur, and tabernacles at his second coming. And I believe he's going to fulfill them on the very days. In the middle of the three spring feasts and the three fall feasts, you have another feast, Pentecost. That was the very day the church was born, right? Well, between the first coming and second coming, what has taken place? The church age. 
By the way, this was the only feast that they were commanded to use leaven. And they were to bake two loaves with leaven. Leaven is a type of sin. God forbid leaven in the first three and last three. Why did he allow leaven in the middle feast, the Pentecost? Because it speaks of how God would take Jew and Gentile and make them one in Christ. But see, we're not free of sin yet. We're redeemed, but we still live in these bodies of death, as Paul put it. We still have a fallen nature that wants us to continue to rebel against God. And we won't be free of these fallen bodies until the rapture happens. And then we shall be made like him, for we will see him as he is. But Pentecost speaks of the church age when God, the Holy Spirit, was sent to keep a special appointment, an appointment that Jesus promised he would keep while Jesus was still in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. Remember around the, uh, the, the table there? And Jesus said, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you can't follow me, not yet. I'm going to come back for you, though. But I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to send you another helper, even the Spirit of truth, who will abide with you forever. He is with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you alone. I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit had an appointment to keep with us, the church, which he kept on Pentecost when the church was born. However... Genesis 1.14 gives us another reason why God created the sun, the moon, and the stars. They would not only be used to mark the passing of time in the sense of days and nights and of the months and seasons of the year, but in verse 14, God said they would also be for signs. Signs. The Hebrew word for signs is oath, meaning beacons or signals, and suggests that the stars especially were placed in the heavens by God to serve as a beacon to guide the people of earth in a particular direction. Of course, it begs the question, what direction? And for that matter, what did God want to signal or announce to the inhabitants of the earth through the stars? Well, many believe the stars were given as an astrological sign or astrological signs to announce important events, or simply to predict a person's future, astrology and so on. However, astrology is an occult pagan practice, and all such forms of fortune-telling are strictly forbidden. In God's Word, Deuteronomy 18, 10 to 12, Isaiah 7, verses 12 to 14, and other places strictly forbid us from getting involved in anything, any pagan occult technique for divination, or to contact God, or any contact the dead, anything like that. We know that Satan is a counterfeiter, a counterfeiter of God's truth. And so many see the zodiac as a satanic counterfeit of the Hebrew Maseroth. You say, well, what is the Maseroth? The precise meaning of the word is uncertain. We don't know. But its context from Scripture has something to do with the constellations. Let me read to you out of Job 38 verses 31 and 2, where God says, speaking to Job, can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Maseroth in its season? Or can you guide the great bear with its cub? These are all constellations. So what is the Maseroth exactly? Well, there are many who believe that the stars, and in particular the constellations, were placed in the heavens by God, listen, to point to and announce to the people of earth the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. There's an interesting, if not cryptic verse in Galatians 3 that plays into this subject. Let me read it to you. Galatians 3, verse 8. Paul said, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. You read that and go, what does Paul mean when he says God preached the gospel to Abraham? Well, let me say this. First of all, it seems that Abraham did know the gospel. You remember when God told him to take Isaac up to Mount Moriah and offer him there. And and, Isaac is about 30, 32, 3 years old at this time. He's not a little kid, all right? He knew what he was doing. He was submitting to what his father wanted. God told Abraham to take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, Offer him on a mount that I will show you, Mount Moriah, three-day journey. 
when they got to the base of the mount, Abraham told the servants to wait here. The, the lad and I will go yonder and worship and come back. Isaac says to his father, Father, we have the wood for the sacrifice and the fire. But where is the sacrifice? Abraham said, Son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. So they make their way up to the top of Moriah, and uh, Abraham lays the wood out. Uh, Isaac lays down on this, uh, this altar, you might say. And just before Abraham plunges the knife into Isaac's chest, of course, the Lord stops him and says to him, kill the ram that's, been, that's caught in the thicket in Isaac's place. God never intended for Abraham to kill his son. But he says he was testing him. And we know, it very interesting, Genesis 22, very interesting section of Scripture. Because after this whole thing plays out, Abraham calls the place Jehovah-Jireh. Jehovah-Jireh means the Lord will provide. He says, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. What shall be seen? I believe Abraham knew he was acting out prophecy. I believe Abraham knew he was acting out a scene that would take place, we know, some 2,000 years later on that very mount, Mount Moriah, Calvary, where another father would offer his only begotten son whom he loved, he would provide himself a sacrifice and in so doing make atonement for the entire world for those who would receive Jesus Christ. In the mount of the Lord, he said, it shall be seen. I think Abraham knew the gospel. I think it's pretty obvious he knew the gospel. Well, Paul said God preached it to him. Okay, God preached it to him. So it's obvious he knew it. But the question is, how did he know it? Well, you say, well, God preached it to him. Okay, but in what way did God preach it to him? Well, many believe it was through the Maseroth, which some have called the gospel in the stars. Now, be careful. Be careful. Because some reject what I'm telling you, and I believe it. But some reject what I'm teaching tonight because they believe that what we are saying is that God preached the gospel through the Zodiac. Let me just say this. God doesn't use occult things to preach the gospel. But he can and does use things like the Maseroth, things he has made, things that are pure because they have come from him, which then Satan can counterfeit, pervert, like he did with the Maseroth by turning it into the Zodiac, a symbol of the occult and so on. The late or early, depending on how you look at it, Dr. D. James Kennedy, writes on this subject using Genesis 1, verse 14, where God said he made the stars for signs. He uses that as a launching point to write an article called The Gospel in the Stars. He said, and I quote, A sign is something which proclaims a message. What is the message proclaimed by the stars? I would like to talk to you about what it might be called, which is the gospel in the stars. We are told in Psalm 19, verses 1 to 3, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Kennedy says, God gave to all the world a proclamation of the gospel in the stars. A picture is worth a thousand words, we are told. And God has indeed painted the sky and made it a picture gallery replete with the glories of his redemption. There exists in the writings of virtually all civilized nations a description of the major stars in the heavens, something which might be called the constellations of the zodiac or the signs of the zodiac, of which there are twelve. If you go back in time to Rome, or beyond that to Greece, or before that to Egypt, or to Persia, Assyria, or Babylonia, regardless of how far back you go, there is a remarkable phenomenon. All nations had the same 12 signs representing the same 12 things placed in the same order. 
archaeologists, historians, antiquarians have searched the dustiest libraries, uncovered the oldest tablets, ciphered the most difficult hieroglyphics, and have failed to discover how it is that all over the world the same signs exist. Remarkably, the stars in the heavens, which represent those 12 signs, bear absolutely no resemblance to the pictures or the signs themselves. For example, what we call the Big Dipper has been called Ursa Major, the Great Bear. One thing that is, one thing that is for sure, it does not look anything like a Great Bear. Neither do any of the other signs look like what they're supposed to represent. Where did their names come from? The Bible tells us that God has named all the stars. Uh, all the hosts of heaven, and that he has numbered them, ordered them, and set them in the firmament to be signs. The original meaning was corrupted into something which is demonic, uh, something which was satanic, something which was counterfeit, something which has given birth to what is known as modern astrology, which the Bible repeatedly condemns and warns Christians against. The corruption began in Babylon with the Tower of Babel. It is well that you have nothing to do with modern astrology whatsoever because of its corruption and satanic aspects. But in order that you might appreciate what God has done, let us look briefly at a few pictures of the zodiac. Well, the Maserat, but the zodiac is what most people know it as. The word zodiac, he said, is thought to mean circle of animals, although some linguists say that it comes from an ancient Hebrew word meaning a path or step that it actually is displaying the way of salvation. Now, I'm not going to read you this entire article. I'll let you, you can Google it, D. James Kennedy, Gospel in the Stars, PDF, you can get it and read the whole thing. I'll just give you a, a few to whet your appetite, okay? He says the Maseroth, or the Zodiac, starts with Virgo, a picture of a woman. Kennedy says, you can look at the stars in Virgo until you are green in the face, and they would never look like a woman. But the picture which has gone with them down through the ages in every nation in the world is a picture of a woman. This woman is clearly identified as a virgin. Virgo means virgin in Latin, Hebrew, Greek, and Arabic. So the first thing we see is the emphasis upon the virginity of this woman. The next sign is coma. He said coma means the desired or longed for one. It is a picture of a woman with a child in her lap. The book of Haggai tells us the desire of all nations shall come, Haggai 2, verse 7. Jesus Christ is the desire of all nations who was to come. The fourth sign is crux. Kennedy says crux is the southern cross. This is one constellation which actually looks uh, uh, like that for which it is named because it consists of four stars placed very clearly in the shape of a cross, as if God did not want us to miss it. In the Hebrew, it is called Adom, which means cutting off. Christ is that one who was cut off out of the land of the living for our sins. The last sign is Leo. Kennedy said, finally, we come to Leo the lion, a picture of Christ who is the lion of the tribe of Judah coming again. He is coming this time not in humiliation, but in great power and glory. The lion's claws are right over Hydra, the serpent, who he is about to finally and totally destroy. Then Dr. Kennedy finishes the article by saying, The art gallery of God painted in the sky is a great and glorious picture. All ancient traditions, all ancient uh, uh, mythologies, all pagan religions, all are nothing more than the corruption of the ancient gospel given by God to Adam and written in the celestial sky for all the world to see. How glorious it is, whether we talk about the special revelation God has given to us in his word or the general revelation that he has given us uh, in nature, the story is always the same. The seed of the woman will destroy the seed of the serpent. At last there came that one who was born of a woman who came to die and rise again that we might live forever. He said, I hope that as you go out on a given evening and look up at the glories of the starry skies, you will be more impressed than ever with the greatness and wonder of our God and the majesty of his grace and mercy, end quote. A lot going on uh, in Genesis chapter 1. How about verse 20? Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures 
and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. God's creation consists of one-dimensional, two-dimensional, and three-dimensional things and creatures. Plants, trees, grasses, etc. are one-dimensional in that they have a body and are alive, but they have no consciousness. Animals, birds, sea creatures, insects, etc. are are two-dimensional creatures in that they have a body and a soul or a consciousness. They are animate, but they don't have a spirit. However, only man is a three-dimensional creature made up of body, soul, and spirit, for only man was made in the image of God who is himself a triune being. So on day five, guys, God creates for the first time living creatures, living creatures. Verse 20, Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens, So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. We see here that God didn't use theistic evolution to create these creatures slowly over millions of years of time. As we have pointed out, theistic evolution is the belief that God created the amoeba, the single-celled organism, and then let it evolve. Again, a capitulation to the uh, the scientists who um, believe in evolution. There's a lot of Christians who, not wanting to look like imbeciles, I guess, want to somehow mix, get, get... evolution into the bible into the creation account because it makes us look smarter like we actually believe something that makes sense well my bible makes plenty of sense just the way god wrote it i'm not looking for anybody to improve on it i've never seen it in the bookstore yet expanded and revised edition all right when god gave it to us he gave it to us complete all right he's god he knows what he's talking about and we don't have to worry that, you know, where these things don't you know, line up with modern science. So, whoa, we've got to do something to make God's word, you know, get more current. As I said, science is always catching up to the Bible. God didn't use theistic evolution. He didn't create an amoeba and then let it evolve. It says he brought forth these things. We can see from Scripture that these creatures appeared suddenly as God created them instantly and distinctively from one another out of nothing. Again, that word created there, bara, Hebrew word that means to bring forth something out of nothing. God made these animals, these creatures, birds, sea creatures. He made them instantly. He made them completely developed. And he made them distinct from others out of nothing. He just spoke the word. As one author said, all life did not come from the same primordial cell leading up to a great chain, quote unquote, of life where all animals, species, and living things belong to the same family, the same single-celled organism. But they did come from the same designer. Now, someone may ask, well, doesn't the fossil record show that these creatures evolved slowly into existence instead of suddenly appearing? Uh, No, uh, it does not. And I don't know if you know this, most people are unaware of this, that Darwin's strongest opponents, listen, were not clergymen, but fossil experts. Darwin admitted the state of the fossil evidence was, and I'm quoting him, the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory, end quote. And because of the the fossil evidence, he said, and I quote, all the most eminent paleontologists and all our greatest geologists have unanimously, often vehemently, maintained that species do not change, end quote. He's proposing, of course, evolution, Darwin was, you know, one species becoming another through evolution. And his most ardent critics of that day were the people who knew fossils, the fossil experts. Now, look, there's, the fossil record is marked by two great principles. I'll give them to you quickly. They're very simple. Two great principles, okay, mark the fossil record. The first one is called stasis. What does that mean? It simply means 
that when we have a fossil of something, whether it be uh, an insect or a small animal or a fish, usually dating millions and millions of years ago, right? We've talked about the fallacy of some of these dating methods. But, uh, you know, they, scientists, you know, they, they, they have these, these fossils, and they claim they go back millions of years. Or they have uh, what is called, um, I forgot the exact name, but it's, uh, it's sap that drips on certain insects and things and encases them. What's it called? It's called amber, yes. And, and, but it, it looks almost like a, uh, a beautiful jewel when it hardens. And they claim these things go back thousands and thousands, if not millions of years. And you've got, I've seen uh, praying mantises uh, in, you know, encased in this amber, right? And as one person said, look, been praying all these years and still isn't converted. Still a praying mantis. I mean, the point is that all the species that we have today, when you go back and find these fossils of these creatures back then, they're still the same. Stasis, okay? They're not, they haven't evolved. A praying mantis from a million years ago still looks exactly like the ones today. This goes for all the fossils, all right? Stasis. The second is sudden appearance. Sudden appearance, which means in any local area where they find fossils, a species does not arise gradually, but appears all at once in the fossil record and fully formed. There are no transitional forms in the fossil records. Uh, let me quote to you Harvard professor Philip Johnson, who has written some fantastic books denouncing and destroying Darwinianism. Okay, But Johnson says, and I quote, if evolution means the gradual change of one kind of organism into another kind, the outstanding characteristic of the fossil record is the absence of evidence for evolution. I mean, if it's all about one kind of creature evolving into another, well, we should see in the fossil record all kinds of, of uh, transitional forms. One species evolving into another. He said, we don't see that. Dr. Dwayne Gish, in his book, The Fossils Say No, states that fossils are the creationist's best friends. Fossils are the creationist's best friends. Because, in, and he was the one that God used back in the early 80s when I first got saved. And, you know, I, I love the word, but I have to be honest with you, I was embarrassed about the account of Genesis, the creation. I was young in my faith. And I was convinced that science had proven evolution that this was all a foregone conclusion. And so how do you reconcile what we know is scientific fact with what the Bible says God did in creation? That was until I started to listen to some very educated scientists who had become Christians because of the evidence. And they began to show me, first of all, that the field of evolution is loaded with errors and flat-out lies. Flat-out lies. Some of these ancient cavemen creatures... They have come to find out they were fabrications. They created a whole creature, how hunched over he was, how hairy he was, based on one tooth, which they later found out was the tooth of an extinct pig. I mean, you know. But Gish pointed out, said, look, there are no transitional forms in the fossil records. And if evolution was true, think about this. And we'll say a lizard was evolving into a bird, if it got you know, around the halfway point, now you know, its, its legs are no longer uh, functional because it's half wing, half leg. can't fly yet, so it's easy prey for predators. You know, see what I mean? I, I have a quote in my office. It goes back about 20 years. I forgot the gentleman's name, but at that time, he was the director of the British Museum of Natural History sitting on the largest repository of fossils in the world, and he said, direct quote from him, I know of no transitional forms in the fossil records. Wow. Wow. Philip Johnson quotes evolutionist Niall Eldridge, who writes, and I quote, We paleontologists have said that the history of life in the fossil record supports the story of gradual evolution, all the while knowing that it does not. End quote. So they perpetuate these lies because they cannot let go of their theories. They have gotten their degrees. They have made their living. They're professors of these things. Now, since this is true, where there's no transitional forms in the fossil records, because of it, 
some evolutionists have embraced what is called the hopeful monster theory. The hopeful monster theory, which suggests that major evolutionary transformations have occurred in large leaps between species due to macro mutations. Did you get that? Let me simplify it. You know what that means? A lizard laid an egg and out came a bird. That's what it means. We can't let go of evolution. We've built our whole career and life on it. There is no transitional forms in the fossil records of lizards becoming birds. So maybe it just happened suddenly. Okay, a lizard laid an egg and then a bird came flying out. I kid you not. Okay, I kid you not. Again, all animal life was created by God according to its kind and given the ability by him to reproduce after its kind. God designed into each kind of living creature, it's true, the ability to adapt to its environment are what we would call changes within a kind or what scientists call horizontal evolution or microevolution, which means adaptations, changes within a kind, but never does one kind become another kind. In other words, lizards will never become birds, birds will never become dogs, etc. One author said, Evolutionists often give convincing examples of microevolution, the variation of a kind within a kind, adapting to the environment. For example, the ratio of black to white peppered moths may increase when pollution makes it easier for dark moths to escape detection from predators. Or finches may develop different kinds of beaks in response to their distinctive environment, but the moths are still moths and the finches are still finches. There has been no change outside of the kind. Microevolution does not prove macroevolution, end quote. Or in other words, look, God has allowed for changes in a kind. God has allowed for, for you know, one kind to, to adapt to its environment, become a little different. Again, that's what Darwin pointed out uh, in his trip to the Galapagos Islands, that finches, he saw, had different kinds of beaks for getting food in different places. He said that's an evidence of evolution. No, that's, ne- well, horizontal evolution where, you know, they've adapted their environment, and so now their beaks have, have kind of adapted to whatever they need to get the food, but they're still finches. Horizontal evolution, yes. Vertical evolution, one species becoming another, absolutely not. Now we'll end with this. In verse 21, it says that God created the great sea creatures. And probably the great sea creatures included great marine dinosaurs. You say, well, are you saying dinosaurs are real? Of course they are. Of course they were. Yes. In fact, the book of Job talks about two of them. One, a great sea creature called Leviathan, and the other, a great land dinosaur it calls Behemoth, which I believe was a brontosaurus. So, you know, I mean, dinosaurs are real. The problem is, scientists, evolutionists say that the dinosaurs roamed the earth 65 million years before man. I don't have time to get into it, but down in Glen Rose, Texas, there's a river called the Paluxy River. And uh, in that riverbed, they have discovered the dinosaur footprints and sometimes inside the dinosaur footprint, human footprint, just like ours, which meant that they lived at the same time. Or sometimes the dinosaur footprint is right next to a footprint of a human being, look just like ours. You know, five toes, you know, so on and so forth. So you know what they do? They take a... Uh, Diamond saw, they cut out the dinosaur footprint, leave, take it back to the museum, leave the human footprint because it doesn't fit with their evolution, and then claim that this, is, this dinosaur footprint is from 65 million years ago, way before man walked the earth. Lies. Distortions, lies, deception. Let me just close by saying this, that the intricate design of each of God's creatures is a testimony to his creative genius. The creation does in fact declare the glory of God. Look, just one example. We could go on all night. Um, God created the birds on the fifth day, right? Who taught them how to fly or how to build a nest? Do you realize that the golden plover makes one of the longest migratory journeys of any shorebird? It breeds in the high Arctic tundra of Alaska and Canada. It breeds up there, lays its eggs, but then takes off for central and south, southern South America where it winters before its young hatch. All right? Now, 
the mother bird gorges itself. It's a long trip, no stopping along the way. Gorges itself uh, with food to make this trip. And, you know, once it starts off, uh, it knows exactly where to fly to get down to where it wants to winter. And if a storm hits and blows it 100 miles off course, it finds its way right where it needs to go. How does it know how to do that? People say, well, remember the way from the last time. Okay. Well, eventually the babies hatch. After a couple of weeks where they need to get stronger, after a couple of weeks they take off for South America. Who told them to go to South America? Who showed them how to get to South America? And if a storm hits and blows them off course, they still find where they need to go. How do you explain that? Evolutionists say, well, they've evolved this complex navigational system. Yeah, that's always the answer. What happened to all these birds before they evolved this thing? I mean, the species would have died out. God has created these creatures. Now, animals and insects and birds, of course, they don't think like we do. We're unique. We can think in abstract concepts. We can solve problems. Animals and so on, birds, they, they, they function according to instinct. But who programs them with this instinct? Who tells them when, they, when they're first born that they know exactly how to build a web if you're a spider, if, you're, if they're a spider? Uh, uh, you know, what to do as far as building these, comp some of them make very complicated nests, these birds. And again, they can fly and they navigate and, I mean, who tells them how to do that? God is the only one that could show them what to do. God made them. He coded into their DNA what they needed to know. From day one, they were able to function. They didn't evolve into it. God made them fully formed and functional on the day they were created. So, again, the, the creation does declare the glory of God. And evolution as we have said, is just man's latest attempt to do away with God, to explain everything apart from God because man does not want to be subject to God. But I'll tell you what, when a person stops fighting God, bows the knee, and receives Christ as their Lord and Savior, the whole world, I mean, you see things so differently. I mean, we can all attest to that light, right? We were once in darkness, now we are light in the Lord. We, we, the light goes on, we, we understand why we're here why God made us, what our purpose is. So we'll continue next week. Of course, day six is when God made the animals of the earth, but also his crowning work of creation, mankind. And we'll look at that next time. Father, we thank you so much that you are such a God of wisdom and power. Lord, we are amazed at your wisdom, how you have made all of these creatures. And how they come together in a complex, interdependent ecosystem. Every creature is there for a reason. And that's the animal and um, insect creatures. And of course, Lord, when you made man, you made man for a purpose. And Lord, give us grace to fulfill our purpose. Which is to glorify you with our lives to be light bearers of your truth in this dark world. And we just pray, Lord, that as things get darker and darker, you would give us grace to shine brighter and brighter by walking in with you in holiness, that we would keep ourselves clean and undefiled from the filth of the world, that we can shine forth as lights in this crooked and perverse generation we find ourselves in. Lord, we thank you and praise you for opening our eyes. And we ask that you continue to bless these studies in your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.